Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Plantopia. Plantopia is the plant health podcast produced by the American Phytopathological Society. I'm Jim Bradeen. I'm a professor of plant pathology and associate vice president at Colorado State University, and I'm the host of Plantopia. And to set the stage for today's episode, let me start with a, a true personal story. When I was a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin some years ago, tragedy struck our lab late one night. A faulty water bath caused a fire that destroyed the two-room laboratory. Now, fortunately, nobody was hurt in this incident, but along with the space, my research and that of many other graduate students and postdoc colleagues went along with it. And it was two years before our space was remodeled and inhabitable. And so I can say from personal experience that it is dramatic for most of us to see our research go up in smoke, but that is not true for today's guest, and we'll learn why in just a moment. Today, I'm very happy to have a conversation with Professor Jason Smith. Jason is a forest and tree health pathologist, and he earned his BS degree in biology from Geneva College in Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, and then a master's and PhD in plant pathology from the University of Minnesota. And I first met Jason when I started at the University of Minnesota as an assistant professor in 2002. Uh, Jason was a graduate student with Professor Bob Blanchett, Bob being a well-known mycologist, a tree and forest pathologist, and expert on wood decay. So after Jason finished his degree, uh, he completed a postdoc also at the University of Minnesota and then joined the faculty at the University of Florida in 2006. And last year in 2022, Jason was promoted to full professor in plant pathology in the School of Forest, Fisheries, and Geomatic Sciences at the University of Florida. And Jason leads an internationally recognized research program that focuses on the etiology and ecology of fungal diseases associated with trees and forests. And his work has identified several new species of fungal pathogens. He's described new tree diseases and has explored the role of wildfires as dispensers of fungal pathogens that impact both environmental and human health, a field of study that is called pyroaerobiology. And this is something that we're going to dig into into this episode. Jason's research is supported by numerous external and internal sources, including the WM Keck Foundation, USDA APHIS, the U.S. Forest Service, the Florida chapter of the International Society of Arboriculture, and many other sources. And his research is both widely published and cited. Today, he has authored or co-authored 83 peer-reviewed journal articles in a diversity of very well-respected journals. Jason also serves as a state forest health extension specialist and is an enthusiastic instructor at the undergraduate and graduate levels. Uh, Jason is a vocal advocate for issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. And you can follow Jason on Twitter at forestpath lab. Jason, it is a pleasure to have you on Plantopia. Thank you for taking the time. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And thank you for that much more than deserved introduction. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for making me look so good. <laughs> and while I have the chance, uh, let me say congratulations on your recent promotion to professor. Oh, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. So Jason, you shared your professional CV with me ahead of this recording. There's there's one line in your CV that I want to ask you about. It's something that I don't typically see on somebody um, coming from a, a plant path background. On your CV, you list Stranger Things, Season 4, Background Talent, 2021. <laughs> what is that all about? <laughs> well, I like to do a lot of different things, and I had an opportunity uh, that came along and 
you know, my, my brother is actually an actor. And, you know, there's a lot of competition when you have siblings. And I should say, actually, it was, it was him who really encouraged me to do it. But it was a, an uncredited background talent opportunity. And, and they wanted somebody that had a nerdy science sort of look to them for this, this particular role. And so I thought, well, I'm kind of nerdy looking and, and I have some experience with science. Maybe I, maybe I have a shot. And, you know, I took the opportunity and I got about a half a second of fame and I thought, well, that's worthy of putting on my CV, right? (laughs) And so I did. So if you watch very closely in episode five of season four in the Nina lab episode, when Eleven walks into the lab for the first time and she meets Papa, you look very closely. You might be able to get a glimpse of me walking over to the tank as an engineer, just in the background, very quickly, but don't blink because you'll miss it. (laughs) <laughs> well, to, to anyone out there, uh, um, if you're interested, uh, I'm starting a Jason Smith fan club. So let, uh, let me know if you're you're interested in that, and we, we can uh, all look for that. <laughs> Stranger Things, of course, is on Netflix. So that that aside, Jason, um, tell me a bit about your interest in plant pathology, and I, I, I'm always interested in how our guests really discover this field. So, so tell us who or what influenced your decision to, to spend your working life in our discipline. Well, you know, I really started out getting into this field because of my interest in trees. Growing up, I just always had just a, a love and a passion for forests and trees and, and uh, nature. And, you know, I was always kind of curious about fungi, but I knew nothing about them. Like a lot of people I had, they just weren't something that I learned much about. And During my undergraduate, I had an opportunity to explore botany a little bit, but not much. But I really got excited about certain tree species and I started reading about them more. In particular, I I just am completely obsessed with aspen. Obsessed. I mean, it's like my favorite species, right? And I, I started reading about them. You know, I, I would scour the literature in the, in the you know library. I would go to the Kent State University Library because I took classes there too. And I would read every article I could. And I came upon literature about, you know, through that process about diseases and research on diseases on Aspen. And the main place where that work was done is was at the University of Minnesota. And I also found that there were people there doing research at the time through some other publications and things. And as it turns out, one of my professors and my undergraduate had done his PhD at the University of Minnesota. And so I started talking to him, you know, he was my molecular biology professor, and he he basically told me about the plant pathology department at the University of Minnesota. And we had conversations. This was sort of towards the end of my undergraduate degree. One thing led to another, and I decided I was going to apply. You know, I applied a couple of different places, but I found out about Bob Blanchett and Bob Blanchett's program. and, And I even found out that Bob Blanchett had worked on Aspen. This was basically very early internet days, right? This was like late 90s, very, very early in the internet. But I, I think I'd maybe sent him emails if I remember correctly. But it was like right when emails were really early, you know, very, I was very early in the email days. But um, but that's basically how it started. Well, it's clearly been a great fit. Um, you, you have really done some amazing things in the field of plant pathology. So we're very glad that you, you chose this profession. Well, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I feel very, very fortunate to have met some really great people along the way and just kind of been lucky to have had these sort of connections that started early on like that, you know, and brought me to the University of Minnesota, which was a very important first step. 
Well, today your, your, your research really encompasses a lot of different aspects of plant pathology and, and forest health. But I really want to focus on something that I think is very unusual, very exciting, very novel. And this really deals with smoke, the dispersal mechanism. And wildfires are in the news a lot lately. And it, it seems from Australia to the Amazon to Siberia, the world just seems to be on fire everywhere. It, in recent years here in the U.S., significant acreage has been destroyed by fires in California, the Pacific Northwest, uh, my, my state of Colorado, and several other places. In 2018, you, you and a group of collaborators published a paper in the journal Ecosphere called Pyroaerobiology, the Aerosolization and Transport of Viable Microbial Life by Wildland Fire. And there's a whole lot in that title. Let's start with the definition, though. And th this paper actually coins the phrase pyroaerobiology. What is pyroaerobiology? Well, it's basically the study of that living component of the smoke that is produced from these wildfires. And interestingly, it was something that was kind of a, a surprise to me. This is something that hadn't really been studied before. Prior to that study, you know, a year or two before that, my colleague here, Lita Kobziar, who was really the person who came up with this concept or this idea, came to me and she said, Jason, would you be interested in collaborating on a little study where we would look at what's living in wildfire smoke, whether or not there are viable microbes there? And, you know, we could look at different aspects of that. But initially, she just wanted to collaborate on that. And we both had a graduate student work together on that, and we had some very, very rudimentary methods initially to do that. We basically used Petri plate that we put on these long poles and put them on the front edge of these fires because we have a lot of control burns, and so we had access to that. She was the one that made that happen, and we looked at a bunch of different ways to collect smoke samples, if you will, initially. And what was surprising, I, I just figured people had already looked at this. I just thought, well, surely people have looked at whether or not there's, you know, viable microbes in smoke. But I couldn't believe that that was something that had been kind of ignored, but it had. So when we did that, we, you know, we discovered, of course, that there was not only viable life there, but there were a lot of potential pathogens. And there was a, a connection between what was burned, in other words, what was consumed, the, the type of vegetation that was burned actually, you know, influenced what was actually found in that smoke plume. So there was a, you know, a certainly a connection between the two and, you know, the patterns of, of what we found and what was being dispersed in that smoke, there may very well be dispersal patterns and mechanisms, you know, and, and other dynamics that needed to be investigated. And we, so we said, Hey, we need to, we need to look at this and we need to do more studies. And so Lita continued to really develop the methodology for sampling and she worked on this as she she left Florida and went to University of Idaho and developed very detailed sampling methods using drones and using air samplers that were attached to the drones so that she was able to have much more precision with the sampling in the smoke plumes to make sure that the, the smoke that was being sampled was being sampled at a certain rate and only specifically from the smoke plumes themselves and so on, which enabled for far better experimentation. And so that allowed us to put together some proposals and we, we started to develop more hypotheses. And we had hypotheses, particularly in relation to human health, because we've had a lot of emerging fungal diseases 
in different parts of particularly in Western North America, that their ideology is poorly understood, but they've been emerging and sort of increasing, particularly in places like California and other parts of the West. And these fungal pathogens are widespread in environmental situations. They're associated, some of them are associated with soil, some are associated with vegetation, but how they are dispersed and how they are you know, reaching vulnerable populations was not understood. At the same time, the human health impact of wildfire smoke has been widely studied and written about. You know, there have been many papers where people have discussed the human health impacts of wildfire smoke, but the living component of it, the potential for pathogens or microbes to be part of that, has been completely ignored. There's been literally nothing addressed on that side of it. And so after we published that first paper that demonstrated that, yes, there are microbes there, bacteria, fungi, and some of these are pathogens, we sort of put two and two together to say, look, some of these may, in fact, include some of these emerging human pathogens, these, these emerging fungal diseases that have sort of unknown etiology. Maybe that etiology might include these large megafires, these widespread fire events that are occurring in the West where huge populations are being exposed to smoke over large periods of time. And so that set the stage for this bigger project, this Keck project that, that we've been working on for the last two years that involves multiple investigators and sort of looking at it on a broader scale. So I have so many questions about this. And first and foremost, though, fire's hot, isn't it? <laughs> Am I wrong about that? But these microbes are surviving that hot environment and are somehow moving into to smoke. That's right. I mean, you know, fires can be very hot. You know, these big fires that are occurring are very, very chaotic events. And so when, when you have one of these very, very large fires, you have all sorts of different wind currents occurring, very strong convective winds occurring ahead of the fire that can kick up dust and, you know, kick up the particulate matter and carry it ahead of the fire. You can have a lot of variation in the temperature within the fire itself. You can have all these different processes that occur. And, I, and I'm not a fire scientist, by the way. I'm sort of interpreting what I've learned by working with these colleagues of mine. But that variation in the fire itself allows for a massive amount of particulate matter and consumed material to be dispersed up into the atmosphere and sometimes to very high altitudes into the atmosphere. And, and so that allows for some things to, you know, obviously be carried that not weren't necessarily consumed completely. That's one thing. The other thing is a lot of these microbes are very thermotolerant too. They're able to tolerate. And so maybe not when they're, that may not be during their growth phase, but we have dormant stages of a lot of these fungi and, and bacteria that are, are very thermotolerant and capable of dealing with very extreme conditions, especially if they are embedded in particulate matter. Because remember, we're not talking about normal dispersal events of fungi that are just like growing and producing spores and then becoming airborne through like, you know, the normal reproductive process. Okay. Like the way we think about typical epidemiology of plant pathology 101, we think about a fungus producing spores, you know, on the surface of a plant and then under the right conditions, those spores become airborne and so on. That's, that's not what's happening here. This is a, a almost like a bomb going on. Everything is just going off up into the atmosphere and whatever stage it was in at that point in time. Some of it may have been in a re reproductive stage. Some of it wasn't. Some of it's embedded in that particulate matter. 
And what is able to tolerate that condition and still be viable on the other end, so, so to speak, it's highly chaotic. And quite frankly, studying that and figuring out what's viable is a complicated process, by the way, too. But it's definitely a very different process than normal reproductive propagules and normal epidemiology. That's why it requires a different paradigm of epidemiology, quite frankly. Smoke is different from ambient air. Totally different. So it sounds as though some of the, the propagules that you're detecting are in smoke itself. Some might be in this front ahead of the smoke, that, uh, just sort of the turbulent winds that are generated as part of that process. Are you finding taxa that are plant-associated or the primarily soil-associated, or is it a mixture? Actually, right now we're doing the viable fungi that we've been able to detect in a number of different wildfires and different samples over a couple of years. And we're assessing all the different traits. And so we're, we are basically looking at essentially what they are. So they've been identified by sequencing. And then we have basically categorized them by different traits, life history traits. So whether or not they are, you know, hallow tolerant, whether they're, you know, psychrophilic, you know, that whether or not they're able to tolerate extreme conditions, those types of things. And also looking at their biogeography also too, because we're kind of interested in whether or not we're finding things that have not been reported in North America before, those types of things. But understanding the life history traits allows us to kind of determine whether or not there's, you know, sort of a unique, I, I don't want to really want to use the term assemblage, but, you know, a unique population or unique group of organisms that are being found or not. But what you do find is these organ, a lot of the organisms that are viable, a lot of them tend to be more, you know, obviously the, the more thermotolerant, the more extremophile type organisms, those that are able to tolerate those extreme conditions. And you definitely have uh, generally a different profile of organisms that are viable versus those that if you just use molecular techniques, you know, you have a very different profiles. So of course, molecular techniques, you're going to find a lot of things that aren't viable there, right? We're comparing methods right now too, to kind of look at what kinds of information we get from the molecular side versus the culturomics side of things and kind of, you know, trying to see if we get sort of congruent information or not and, you know, and, and how that information can be used because it's complicated. Because the other thing is a lot of these samples are, are relatively low biomass, very low biomass, even though we're sampling actively using a pump on a drone to sample from the smoke and you're getting particulate matter there. The, the amount of biomass of, of numbers of cells is still relatively low. So it's still tricky to sometimes utilize that for, for luminous sequencing, those types of things. And so we're working through the sort of the methodology and comparing methodologies because there's a lot of people interested in aerobiome sampling and doing that for other reasons. It's definitely a nuanced thing, especially if you're, if you're using something just like, you know, ITS, for example, it's not always giving you the clearest picture of what's there. Right, right. One of the many interesting things that I noted in your Ecosphere paper was evidence that sites that have undergone periodic burns seem to be enriched for microbial species that are maybe more heat tolerant. Is that evidence that, that smoke is really a, a driver for these changes yeah. in, in assemblages? You know, that's initially what we're finding. Now, that again, that's something that I think we need to look at on a bigger scale. I think looking at uh, multiple ecosystems that are fire dependent. Uh, we did get some samples from Kanza Prairie this year, which is a, you know, regularly burned ecosystem. And it'll be interesting when we, we finish this trade analysis to see if that, you know, that same result is observed, that it's enriched for those 
that will be an interesting approach, I think, to look at for management potentially, because, you know, one of the things that people are, are very interested in right now in places like California is the whole idea of doing controlled burns. There was a moratorium on controlled burns last year in California for a long time. And, you know, I mean, historically in the West, there's been a suppression of doing any burning, you know, really over the whole region for a long time. A lot of ecologists and, and forest managers and so on have you know, more recently really been trying to argue that, look, we need to do more burning on the landscape to to prevent these larger fires for one thing. But the other thing is, I mean, maybe there's a lot more fine scale potential benefits or other things we might see when it comes to doing these regular burns, one of which may be, you know, might diversify the, the microbial communities or change them somehow. I mean, we just don't know how it affects those types of things, really. I don't think there's been enough work done on those types of things at this point. So, you know, I don't want to give an answer. We just don't know. And I think that's the point. And that's why we're, we're looking at this. There certainly is a, a form of environmental stress. It would be logical that that does have some influence at whatever level, recognizing how chaotic this process is, as you mentioned. Right. Um, your study really looked at controlled burns. And, you know, we've referenced wildfires that, that have devastated certain parts of the world. But of course, in agricultural settings, burning also has its place um, and is practiced in various parts of the world. So do you think that those same dynamics of microbial dispersion are happening in those fires in ag settings as well? It's possible. Before we did this study, there was a high school student that did a science fair project. And she was actually in Texas and did a science fair project where she actually detected fungi that were coming from, I believe it was from South America. Basically, what she determined from her project was that they were coming from South America from the, the agricultural burning that was happening in South America. And this is really the only study of any sort that has ever been done on this type of work prior to the work that we did here and the work that we published in Ecosphere. And I think that the large amounts of, you know, agricultural burning that's done in other parts of the world and, and here in Florida, for that matter, with sugarcane, the sugarcane fields are burned regularly in South Florida. And people have been saying for years that they get sick every year, you know, whenever the sugarcane burning happens. Whether or not there's any connection between these things, I think, who knows? But I think it's, it's certainly something to look at. I don't see why there wouldn't be. Certainly, I think the microbial dispersal would be very likely in that scenario. I don't see, you know, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. We haven't gotten any samples from those types of scenarios, but the thing that I worry about is fungicide resistant fungi being spread that way. Things like aspergillus. So one of the fungi that we've recovered from our studies is aspergillus fumigatus. Aspergillus fumigatus is, you know, an emerging fungal pathogen. Uh, it's also widespread in agricultural landscapes. And it's developing fungicide resistance due to the widespread use of azole fungicides. It would make sense to me that because it's one of the ones that we're finding in, in the smoke samples, that in these agricultural settings, if you're burning regularly and you're using azole fungicides in you know, situations, it would be possible that you would get these fungicide resistant strains. And the people that are going to be most vulnerable to these types of infections are people that are exposed to these long smoke inundation events. That's exactly the people you don't want to be exposed to fungicide resistant strains of, you know, of aspergillus fumigatus. That's kind of a scary 
scenario, but and, and and it might seem very specific, but there there's a lot of it in the landscape, and we know that there's more and more of these resistant strains being detected in environmental scenarios, right in the same areas where burning occurs. They've been detected. So anyway, that's just another component. And, and building on that human health aspect, uh, a moment ago you mentioned to me um, valley fever, and that's brand new to me. So, so tell us, first of all, what is valley fever and how do you think this might be connected to, to wildfires? Yeah, so valley fever has been, a, you know, sort of a rapidly growing and emerging fungal disease of humans and in the southeast respiratory disease that has been getting you know, becoming more and more problematic. Initially, it was really more of a problem for agricultural workers and people like that, but it's been now affecting much broader population. And it's a soil-borne pathogen that is found mostly associated with rodent activity, uh, interestingly, uh, but it's, it's found on certain soil types and parts of central and southern California and to Arizona and those areas. So the fungus that causes, there's two species of coccidioides. Coccidioides imitus and Coccidioides posidaceae. And uh, these are high priority for CDC to determine more on the etiology and epidemiology of this disease. So for us, we were thinking that, again, you know, because there's sort of this gap in the understanding of how this disease is spreading, it made sense that potentially this was getting moved around in these big wildfires. So again, you know, if it's, if it's in that soil, you have these big fires moving that dust, moving, you know, moving that smoke around it would be possible. So this one is a little bit difficult to work with because you can't culture it directly from environmental samples. It has to go through a mammal to, and then you ha then you collect the blood from the mammal and you can, it produces another spore type in the blood of the mammal. So uh, molecular methods are the only way you detect it initially. And then you have to um, inoculate rabbits or you know, some other mammal to do that. So it's, it's a tricky one to work with, really tricky. But we have a team member at Kaiser Permanente who is an epidemiologist, who is scouring electronic health records. Going back 13 years, you know, so he's scouring these electronic health records for about 120,000 fungal infections per year in California, and basically looking for patterns of potential patterns of any kind of interaction between when you have these infections and when there were wildfire events in looking at sort of the geography of those events and when these infections happen. So that's part of this project is to, to see if there's evidence in the epidemiology data to go along with you know, the sampling that we're doing and the, and the fungal detection work we're doing as well. Through that, we may see patterns in, in things like valley fever as well. You know, the work is ongoing, but, you know, we've got some interesting, definitely some interesting results so far. And that's just one of them. There's others like cryptococcus. You know, Cryptococcus is another fungus that, you know, it's associated with trees. To complete its, its sexual life cycle, it has to grow on basically the bark or the wood of trees. But it's causing more and more infections in humans, particularly in the Pacific Northwest, even in immunocompetent individuals. So again, if those, those trees are part of a wildfire, which you know, they are, it makes sense that this fungus would show up. And we've detected that fungus multiple times in our smoke samples. So looking at the epidemiology data, we want to see, okay, is, are we seeing peaks of infections in electronic health records to kind of go along with that? Oh, it's, it's amazing where this research is going. Um, I, I'm eager to see how the methods evolve and how your, your understanding of the importance of smoke and, and wildfires really matures. It seems like there's a lot there that we need to learn about. I'll mention to the listeners that we'll 
post a link to the Ecosphere a journal article that we just referenced. Uh, you can find that at plantopiapodcast.org. And Jason, um, I want to shift gears a little bit now and, and talk about guacamole. Your research has been really uh, very diverse, and um, we, we just heard a really good example of it. But another line of research that you're known for is is your work on laurel wilt, um, which is an exotic disease that has impacted uh, red bay and other tree species in the Lauraceae family. Tell us a bit more about what laurel wilt is, what red bay is, and, and I, I guess for that matter, what the Lauraceae is. Sure. So laurel wilt is a devastating exotic vascular wilt disease caused by the fungal pathogen Herringtonia lauricola. It is transmitted by the exotic ambrosia beetle, Xylebris libratus, which is from Asia. It was first discovered here in 2002 near Savannah, Georgia, and has since spread to much of the southeastern United States and now is as far north as Kentucky. And it has been affecting our native species in the Lauraceae. That's the laurel family. It includes native species like sassafras, spicebush, uh, and then several evergreen species that are we call bays, but are related to avocado. So we have several of these evergreen trees here in the southeast, red bay, swamp bay, silk bay. They kind of look, you know, almost like a magnolia, but they don't have a beautiful flower. But they do produce a little tiny fruit that looks like a miniature avocado, if you know what that looks like. They're very ecologically important trees, very, very important, important culturally too for the native tribes. And so this disease has just been rapidly decimating these species, killing hundreds and hundreds of millions of trees. And there's very little resistance and it's been spreading since 2002, very similar to the way Dutch elm disease spread through the American elm population. So now it's been hitting avocado as well. There's some commercial avocado in South Florida. And so it's, it's been you know, devastating to the avocado growers as well. And it certainly threatens the avocado industry elsewhere. It's a vascular wilt. So the fungus invades the sapwood or the, you know, the vascular tissue, the xylem of the affected trees. It's carried there by this tiny little ambrosia beetle. The ambrosia beetle uses the fungus as a symbiont. It actually feeds on the fungus, but the beetle appears to be sort of confused, if you will, for lack of a better term, because normally ambrosia beetles bore into trees that are already dead and dying. That's their normal behavior. And then they use those trees as a substrate to cultivate their fungus. But in this case, they're boring into trees that are perfectly healthy. They just make a tiny little pinhole, you know, basically initially. But in the process, they release the spores of the fungus. And it only takes a, a few days or, you know, to maybe a couple of weeks after that. And the trees start to wilt and die very quickly. The trees basically overreact to the presence of that fungus. So our, our native North American Lauraceae die very quickly to this. They're, they're very, very susceptible. And uh, it's been a, just an extremely devastating disease. And it's taken us a while to kind of figure all this, this biology out. You know, when I first started working on it in 2006, we didn't even have a name for the disease. And we were sort of trying to figure out how it works and, you know, and trying to figure, come up with management strategies and things. At that point, it wasn't even affecting avocado yet. So what are the management strategies? Well, I mean, at this point, you know, we spent a lot of time, I mean, my lab has spent a lot of time looking at potential resistance because we have found survivors, you know, despite the fact that it kills 95 to 99% of mature red bay trees, there's still a small percentage out there in the forest that survive. You know, you have to really look for them, but they're there. 
And we noticed that very early on that there were these residual trees that were there. You know, very early on, we said, okay, let's take a look at those trees and see if they have any resistance. Because if they do, then they could be used for restoration to try to, you know, try to enhance the restoration of the future of the species. Because there was real concern that the species might go extinct with red bay and also the closely related species. We also thought that if there was resistance, that the whatever the mechanism was would be important for avocado. And once we found out that avocado was susceptible. So we really put a lot of effort into that. And ultimately, it turns out that there is some resistance. And we vegetatively propagated those trees, verified that resistance by inoculating trees. And then we've even looked at the inheritance of that resistance. We found that some trees produce, you know, seedling survivors that seem to display good resistance. And we're trying to verify that further. But we've published a couple of papers on the resistance now. And, and what's really promising is that on some of these sites where you have survivors, you're, we're seeing good, you know, regeneration around those trees, which even though it's a small percentage, it's something. It's showing that there are some residual trees that are going to be able to persist. There are the management strategies for avocado and the avocado groves. It's a lot of it's sanitation, finding those trees early on that are affected, getting rid of them, chipping the trees because the beetles can't, you know, really reproduce very well. And, you know, they can't reproduce at all in a chipped tree. So if you get the tree early on, chip it, get rid of that infested tree, which is very similar to the management strategies that we have for Dutch elm disease and oak wilt, very similar strategies. But we had to do the science to kind of figure that out when we were talking about fungicide resistance in aspergillus. So it's the azole fungicides, propiconazole. It is effective, but and you can use it for landscape trees. You know, if you have an individual tree, you can protect it every two years, every two to three years in some cases, once the disease is kind of pressure has gone down. But it's not something we can go and do in the forest. It's just not a, a reasonable strategy in that case. Wow, such important work. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> been an interesting journey. And that's just one example of many of these new emerging diseases affecting our native trees. We have new ones that we're working on, I mean, as we speak, new ones that were at the very beginning of sort of understanding what they are and even coming up with names for these fungi. There's a continuous sort of freight train of them coming in into the country and we need more people working on these things. So if anybody's interested in forest pathogens, forest pathology, I encourage them to come help where we work on them because, you know, there's plenty of job security in this field. Great plug. Absolutely true. Well, I, I want to thank you for your, your, your time and insights today. Uh, this has been a really fun conversation. And as we're closing up, I'm, I'm wondering if you have any advice for current or future students other than study forest pathology. Of course, that's good yeah. advice, but, but what other insights do you have for early career scientists that are interested in, in, in plant pathology? Um, I would say just really stay focused on your goals. Don't listen to people that are negative, you know, because you're going to hear negative people. You're going to say, oh, don't go into academia. It's too difficult or it's too competitive or these things. If you want to do something, stay focused on it and don't give up on it. Don't let people tell you otherwise because you can do things. You don't have to be some special <laughs> special person or whatever. I, I feel like in a lot of ways, I'm very average and and I, my my success has been largely due to my ability to uh, associate with really good people and being able to collaborate with great people and find those good teams of people and keep in mind that that's a huge part of why people are successful is because you have good teams of people that you can collaborate with and so on you know associate with diverse groups of people and build on those on those relationships and use them wisely 
we just heard from Professor Jason Smith of the University of Florida. Jason is a plant pathologist and star of Stranger Things Season 4, Episode 5. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Plantopia. I'm Jim Brady, the host of Plantopia, and I'm looking forward to our conversation next time. <laughs>